Uh, today we are continuing our journey, the butterfly effect, and uh, where we're going through the book of Ruth. And uh, we call it the butterfly effect because in Ruth, uh, we get to see kind of some key moments where decisions are made and uh, and it really all history hinges on these decisions. But the amazing thing about these decisions are they're, they're, they're not really what you would think is world stage type decisions. They're just personal decisions that people are making and uh, they, they have far reaching consequences or benefits. And uh, if you remember in week one, we opened up our story with uh, Naomi, who is the mother-in-law, and, uh, and her two uh, daughter-in-laws, uh, Ruth and Orpah. And all three of them were uh, living in a place called Moab, and their, their husbands had all died mysteriously. No, just kidding. Uh, and uh, uh, so they were widows, and, and Naomi was from Israel, and she decided, hey, I'm in this foreign land. There's no real reason for me to be here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back home, guys, and uh, you know what? You guys can take off, go back to your own homes, and be with your people and things like that. And at that point, uh, Orpah said, hey, sounds good. Nice knowing you guys. I'm going to go back, and she goes off into history where Ruth decides, you know what, you know, I could go back to my parents, I could go back to my family and my friends and things like that, but you know what, Naomi, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with you, and I'm going to go back to your land, and I'm going to worship your God, and I'm going to be with your family, and, and those kind of things. And uh, so she headed back, and uh, we see that that decision uh, led up to the rest of this story where things started happening and uh, that actually affects us today. So, uh, and we decided or we saw in first week that, hey, you know what? Our decisions, they matter. They matter not only to ourselves, but they matter to the people around us. And then the next week, we saw kind of Ruth getting acquainted in her new home. And we talked about how uh, a widow in that time, in that culture, uh, was really disadvantaged. And she was really at the mercies of everyone around her. And uh, they were hungry. And, and in Israel at that time, uh, there was a law uh, of God that said, look, when you are a landowner and you're farming, that uh, once you farm all of your stuff, don't go back and get the, go over it a second time and get all the last little bits. Leave that for the, the widows and the orphans and the foreigners. And also kind of leave the edges of your fields unharvested um, so they can eat, the poor people can eat as well. And really not many people were doing this and weren't really obeying the law, but a guy named Boaz made the decision that he was going to do this. And Ruth was out and, and trying to find some food, and she went out to the field. And because he made that decision that she was able to get some food, and her and Naomi were able to eat, and uh, she was also able to, to meet Boaz. And uh, a, a relationship started to build out of that. So that's kind of where we are in this story. And I wanted to pick up tonight in chapter 3 uh, in verse 1 and, and just read you where we're at. One day Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it is time I found you a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. 
Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he has been very kind by letting you gather grain with his workers. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath, you kind of stink, and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor and don't let Boaz see you until he has finished his meal. Be sure to notice he, where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lay down there. He will tell you what to do. Now, before I continue, uh, interesting thing about this story is that uh, one of the temptations tonight is to put our 21st century kind of Christian values on, on people who weren't Christians, that they were Jews, and they were living in a really different time in a different place, and they had different cultural uh, norms and customs and, and things like that. So we need to remember that as we're looking at this, that, that what they're doing uh, has some different implications than necessarily if uh, we were going to do this uh, in today's day and age. So Ruth goes on and says, look, I'll do everything you say, Ruth replied. She went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished his meal and was in good spirits, he lay down beside a heap, the heap of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. I always thought that was kind of funny. Well, and you would be, wouldn't you? I would be, at least. Who are you, he demanded. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Now, let me pause there really quick before I read. Just read on to give you a little bit of context here. Now, basically, the family redeemer... Uh, the the law was that that if if uh, a woman's husband dies, if she would basically lose rights to the property and the estate, unless the hus the the brother of her ex her dead husband married her, and they called that the kinsman redeemer, and essentially. Uh, they would get married and uh, they would hopefully, uh, in their culture, have a boy. And that boy would then carry on the, the dead husband's name and uh, inherit his estate. So that's the kinsman redeemer. Now, that was only required of the brother, the surviving brother. But also there was a custom that you would keep on going farther and farther away uh, from the brother as far as the family tree, but it was an option at that point. Now, what Ruth is doing here is there is no uh, surviving brother. So uh, what Naomi said is, hey, Ruth, you know what? Boaz is related to uh, you know, your, your, your dead father-in-law. So go and do this and go lay at his feet. Now, uh, you know, there some people say, well, there's, there's no, you know, sexual overtones or anything like that. That that's just bull. There is, but, but, uh, but what she's doing here saying, spread the corner of the cut your cover over me for you are my family redeemer. Essentially what she's doing is proposing marriage to him. 
She's coming to him, and you know what? She, she's taking a bath, and she put on some perfume. She put on some nice clothes to look you know, pretty and smell good and all those kind of things that women do. And in uh, proposing marriage, saying, hey, I want you to be my kinsman redeemer. So it continues on. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing more family loyalty now than ever by not running after a younger man whenever it is necessary. Or excuse me. So now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I, want, I will do what is necessary. For everyone in town knows you are an honorable woman. But there is one problem. While it is true I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is close, more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk with him. If he is willing to redeem you, then let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then surely as the Lord lives, I will marry you. Now lay down here until morning. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until morning. But she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Boaz also said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured out six scoops of barley into the cloak and helped her put it on her back. Then Boaz returned to the town. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, What happened, my daughter? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz has done for her. And she added, He gave me these six scoops of barley. He said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, Just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has followed through on this. He will settle it today. Let's pray. Dear God, I just... um, Thank you so much for this story, and even though it's from a far-off place and a far-off time, uh, God, I just pray that we can understand that these are real people in real difficult situations trying to make the best decisions that they can. God, can you uh, just please enlighten us and move us closer to your heart and mind tonight? We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think many times, and I often talk about this, that we read it we read narratives in the bible and we see the the stories going on and and we have the tendency to want to uh turn the the characters uh not take their their humanity away from them forget that they were real people in a real time in a real place with real hurt and real pains just like you and i and realistically as the these decisions are are being made we can't take them out of the context of of where they are and who they are the reality is that naomi and ruth are widows they're horribly disadvantaged that they're impoverished and they're hungry and they're trying to figure out how are they going to not just make it through life but just make it through the day and so different decisions in fact uh, three different decisions are made uh, in the story that we're talking about this evening and we got to look at those decisions and say okay you know what these people are in a really hard circumstance and how are they making decisions you see the truth is that you know all of us make decisions we make decisions daily and 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 I often wonder, you know, what, what's the difference between us making a good decision and a bad decision? Like, what are some of the common denominator type things? 
I mean, the truth is that most of us know, uh, you know, that we're making a bad decision or we know what the a good decision is. You know, we can easily uh, look at a plate of cookies. In fact, I came in this morning and there was a whole bunch of cookies and they looked really good. And, and you know, th- and there wasn't like oatmeal or something next to it but but if there if there was you know I, I would have been faced with a, or a few decisions but I got to tell you that when I saw those cookies I I immediately said, I want to eat those cookies in fact I want to take the whole thing and I just want to eat them all you know it just I, I you know I love the cookies and and um, but but you know, I knew that that would have been a bad decision, that that wouldn't have been good for my body. It wouldn't have been good for whoever, you know, brought those cookies for everyone to share. It wouldn't have been good for the people who uh, weren't able to get any of those those cookies. But but so many times, and, and in the past, I've, I've been weak, and I, I would see, like, some yummy cookies or something like that, and I would just, you know, I would just nail them. I just, you know, I, I got to just have a half a cookie. You ever do that? You walk in, you have a dessert or something there, and you go, well, I'll just have a half a piece or a half a cookie, and you eat the half a cookie, and you're like, oh, well, I'll just have another half a cookie. And, and you like break off little bits and pretty soon, you know, you've eaten like a ton of, of cookies and, and they're all gone and your wife yells at you and says, where's the cookies? And you go, I don't know where the cookies are. And, and uh, okay, well, I, I mean, but, but we all understand that, that most of us know that eating a whole bunch of cookies isn't the right decision to make. It just happens to be a decision that that we may make. We do it with food choices all the time. You know, have you ever noticed that good food doesn't for you doesn't taste as good as the good food that tastes good? You know, it just you know, and we have to make a decision. You know, do I want something that's good for my body and good for the environment and good for for you know the, my community around me, or do I want something that is going to satisfy my needs and my wants right now? So basically is they're making decisions that they, you know, they're faced with these little decisions and these big decisions all the time. And the first decision that, that Ruth is faced with is Naomi comes up to her and, and Naomi was probably pretty young. Uh, I mean, excuse me, not Naomi. Uh, Ruth was probably pretty young. She was, you know, probably in her lower 20s that, you know, she hadn't had any children yet. And, uh, you know, she was probably good looking and, and... Uh, obviously, that, that she had some options here. And Naomi's all, hey, you know what? I want you to go to Boaz, who was a much older guy, and, and I want you to propose marriage to her. And Naomi, at this point, could have said, look, or Ruth could have said to Naomi, look, you know what? I said I would come with you. I said I'd hang out with you, that I would try to, you know, be your friend and and do life with you but but I never said anything about marrying some old guy you know that that and, and basically she's sitting here and she has a decision to make does she honor her mother-in-law's request to go to Boaz and and offer herself essentially to him or does she say hey you know what that wasn't part of the deal I'm either, you know, breaking the covenant, I'm going back to Moab, or I'm just not going to do it. And what she does is she decides, you know what, I'm going to honor 
my mother-in-law's uh, request and I'm going to go and I'm going to do what she has asked me to do. And that, again, that decision sets into action a whole course of events. The next decision is that, you know what, she comes sneaking in smelling good and, and, and dressed up and she sneaks in to the bed of, of an older guy in the, in the middle of the night. And as much as we like to think, oh, Bible people do the right Bible type things, you know what, Boaz was a real guy. And there was a young woman in his bed. No one knew that she was there. And she was desperate. Not desperate for sex, but desperate for uh, uh, sanctuary and, and being taken care of. And Boaz at this point has a decision to make. He could take advantage of her and the situation, or he could do the honorable thing and, and think, treat her with honor and treat the family with honor and not take advantage of the situation, as we see in the story, that he chooses to honor her and the family. The final decision that was made was when Ruth came back to Naomi the next morning and Naomi asked what happened and she told, she told uh, Naomi what, what happened and she said, you know what, Boaz is an honorable man. He's a man of his word. Let's just step back and let him handle it then. They didn't have to do that. They could have set up this whole scenario that, you know what, they could have set it up and started gossiping, saying that Boaz had taken advantage of, of Ruth and, and kind of entrapped him in a bad situation to, to force him to marry her and be the kinsman redeemer. But they didn't do that. They, they made some decisions, and these decisions, I believe, are, are guided by a higher a higher principle or a higher calling. And, and I was thinking about it and, you know, why, why do we not make, why don't we make the right decision all the time? How come sometimes we eat too much or, or we don't exercise or we, you know, gossip or we take the, you know, we cheat on our taxes or, or, you know, take a little bit more than we're owed or treat somebody poorly. You know, why do we, in different circumstances, don't, why don't we make the right, the right decision? And you can just yell out, why do you think there are some reasons? Why, when we know better, why don't we make the right decision? Selfishness. Selfishness. Any others? Instant pleasure, like instant oatmeal. What? Instant, yeah, thank you, instant pleasure, all right. My wife hates it when I write in front of you guys because I'm like sloppy and I don't know how to spell. Besides that, I'm pretty good at it. What else? Oh, very good, immaturity. Maturity, yeah. <laughs> It's harder to spell up here. I mean, I'm a bad speller anyway, but go ahead. Next, any? <laughs> Oblivious to the consequences. The O2TC. Peer pressure, yeah, peer pressure. 
Right, and I got your integrity one or lack of lack of integrity. Integrity. Int <laughs> lack integrity. That's a I, by the way. It does. Don't criticize me. <laughs> Anybody else? Failure to trust. Oh yeah, lack of trust. Fear. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Trusting. No, really, I love you. I want to be with you forever. Yeah, that's a t too trusting. Under circum, under circum, <laughs> under certain circumstances, substances. Can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, 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 so, so, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Drugs and alcohol. All right, well, we basically get the point, right? Uh, what? Oh, I thought somebody else had to get one in. I was thinking about it, and, and these, I think a lot of these, can fall under under a category of of unwillingness to sacrifice for long term good or having a short term mindset. You think about uh, a lot of times we uh, when I talk with people and they've made horrific decisions. There's some common denominators, and when I look back at like some of the bad decisions that I've made in my life, there's some common denominators and. Usually it's, it's short-sightedness and kind of a I want this now mentality. A lot of times people will say, well, I want to do this because it makes me happy. And I mean, there's not necessarily anything wrong with happiness, but, it, but the, the ultimate uh, uh, goal of happiness is, is really fleeting. And it can also lead us to some pretty horrific uh, um, decisions. Or, or, you know, a lot of times we make a, a bad decision because of just we desire it or we just want it now. And I think a lot of that comes back to just immaturity, you know, having a two or three year old kind of mentality of, of wanting it now. You know, this peer pressure one, you know, just trying to live up to some sort of idea of, of the culture that you are uh, around. And. A lot of times, you know, we make a lot of bad financial decisions this way. I know that I have in a pa in the past. iPods, how many gigs are they up to now? That's why, okay, 32. And, uh, you know, you think about that, and uh, don't raise your hand, but how many of you uh, had a 16 gigabyte uh iPod and and the new iPod came out with a 32 and you really didn't have the cash to buy it but you, you know I mean you it's so hard to get all the all the music that you have on the 16 gigabyte hard drive and if you got the 32 gigabyte hard drive well you could get more music on there and like your great grandkids could be listening to it you know on the same mix and and forever and all this stuff you go well, you know what I don't have the cash but I'm just going to charge it yeah you know, what you know why what what where does these kind of decisions 
You know, and I don't think many people would defend that kind of decision. And where, where does that stem from? And I think a lot of times it's like, well, I want, I want to tell my friends I have the 32 gigabyte uh, uh, iPod or, or instant gratification. You know, I like the new color or something like that or just selfishness or pride of always having the newest and the latest thing and stuff like that or, or fear that if you don't get it that, that people will you know, you'll start losing your reputation of having the newest and latest thing and other people are going to have it and all these kind of things. And it's true all the way across the board. You can say that with relationships and with iPods and cars and, you know, these kind of things, this, this pursuit of instant gratification uh, and uh, uh, just wanting to be happy now because you, you just you feel this emptiness has led us to all sorts of poor decisions. And as I, as I look at these stories, you know, that they're, these decisions that they have made, the decision that Ruth made to, to honor Naomi's request, the decision that Boaz made, it was a decision not to take advantage of Ruth in a vulnerable situation. And then also the decision that Naomi made that, that she was going to step back and let Boaz follow through with what he said he was going to do. That I believe that these decisions were guided not by instant gratification, but by something, a higher set of principles. Now, there's 613 laws of Moses that are found in the Old Testament. And one that refers to the kinsman redeemer, I think, well, help us understand a little bit more about, about a higher calling or a higher, we're being guided by a set uh, base of values instead of just making decisions as they come about. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 7, it says, But if a dead man's brother refuses to marry the widow, she must go down, she must go to the town gate and say to the leaders there, my brother's husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to marry me. The leaders of the town will summon him and try to reason with him. If he still insists that he doesn't want to marry her, the widow must walk over to him in the presence of the leader, pull his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. She will then say, this is what happens to a man who refuses to raise up a son for his brother. And then I love this next part. Ever afterward, his family will be referred to as the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. I would hate that. Could you just me imagine, yeah, that we're known as the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. And you might be sitting there going like, that is so obscure. What does that have to do with anything and it actually has everything to do with what we are talking about you see that culture and especially Boaz and Naomi and Ruth was learning uh, these these principles that that these decisions weren't made right on on the spot that that they had yielded their 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 decision maker making to to a higher decision-making process to a, a to a set of values 
and saying, you know what, I'm not just going to be selfish or, or, or give in to my selfishness or instant pleasure or immaturity uh, or O2TC, I don't remember what that was, uh, peer pressure or pride or, or any of these things. That, you know what, that, you know, even though this decision that's coming in front of me is, is different and, and unique, I already have a set, uh, set kind of guidelines and values that I am going to live my life by. And as you kind of step back, that you start to see that people who live their life by values and not by trying to make decisions on the, on the fly, they, they live fuller, more God-honoring lives. So, I was thinking about this and trying to think of, of a, a kind of a metaphor that could kind of make it real to us. And, and uh, I remember when I was a kid, my, my parents had a cabin up in, in Big Bear, and it was a mountain cabin. And basically, we, we lived uh, near the coast uh, area. We lived in Los Angeles, which was kind of in, in, in a valley. So you would have to drive quite a bit, flat and straight, on the 10 freeway to get to the San Bernardino Mountains, where Big Bear Lake was was found. And I mean, it seemed like forever as you just drove and you drove and you drove, you know, straight. And then finally you would hit to the, the bottom of the mountain, the base of the mountain. And you would start going up this mountain and all the little switchbacks and you would be going up and then you would go down and you would turn around and all this kind of stuff. And it would take forever. And, it, and to be honest with you, you know, there was many times that I would just like I would get sick and I would throw up. And it was just it was, you know, and it was boring. And I just it was a bad situation, you know, just a bad situation for a, a little kid. And I often thought, why don't they just make the road straight like the one that took us here? I mean, you know, why don't we just go straight up the mountain? Why do we go up and down and all this kind of stuff? And, you know, we could get up a good head of steam on the, on, and then just come whoop right up the mountain and we would be there. Because it really wasn't that far. I think it was like for the base of the mountain, it was, it was only like 8,000 feet up in the air, which, you know, it's just like a, about a mile, but it would take over an hour to do all the switchbacks to just make that mile. And the truth is that in my kid's mind, it didn't make any sense. But now that I understand that, you know what? That's part of the journey. That, 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 that it's part of the journey of, of going and making those switchbacks and going up a mountain. And sometimes you go up and sometimes you go down. And sometimes, you, you know, you're going west, but other times you are going east. And traveling the, the mountain road. Can, can be sickening, and it, and it can be hard, and it can be time-consuming, but ultimately, it's the best way to get to your destination. And as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about make the right decision, it's actually the the shortening of mountain and, and road. And I was thinking about that and just uh, why I titled tonight, you know, traveling the mountain road is making the right decision. And it does, it's not always the quickest way, 
making the right decision. I think a lot of times we, we make decisions because we want to, to get to where we're going faster. We think it's a shorter route, so we compromise our values and our principles. You know, sometimes we, the, doing the right thing can be hard and it can be sickening. And it requires sacrifice. But we have to respect the journey. And nobody ever said getting to the place where, where God has envisioned us to be was going to be easy, that there wasn't going to be ups and downs, there weren't going to be switchbacks, there wasn't going to be nauseous, nausea, there wasn't going to be hard times. But in our journey that we call life, we have to respect the journey and respect the path that it takes us on. And we have a guiding set of values found that were given to us by God. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks kind of about this in a sports metaphor. He says, remember that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. You must also run in such a way that you will win. All athletes practice strict self-control. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run straight to the goal with purpose in every step. I am not like a boxer who misses his punches. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that my, after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. What Paul's talking about here is the discipline not to give in to short-term pursuits of happiness or or instant pleasure or things like that, but to have a picture and respect the journey to travel the mountain road and say, you know what? It may not look like I'm going in the right direction, but I know that these values see far are farther reaching than what my eyes or my feelings can currently feel. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, he says this, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ my Lord. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I may have Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own goodness or my ability to obey God's law, but I trust Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. As a result, I can really know Christ and experience mighty power that raised Him from the dead. Basically what Paul is saying there is, look, when we engage in these activities of faith, even though we want to go up and we're on our mountain road and we're, we're descending and we can't see around the next turn, but it seems like we should be going the other way, that when we say, you know what? I'm going to trust the, my guiding principles versus what my senses can currently see that we, that we start to experience something entirely different, that we actually start to experience the creator of the universe. And how this relates to us is, you know, God asks us to be the conduit of His love and grace. But in order for us to be the conduit of His love and grace to, to bring, to, to be the voice of the oppressed, to, to, to go out and, and be the tangible hand of Christ, it, it requires us 
to be guided by our principles, to be guided by the things that make us followers of Christ rather than our selfishness or our instant pleasure or maturity because it costs. It costs something. It costs time. It costs money. It, it costs our hearts. It costs awareness. We have to open ourselves up to see that there is bigger stuff going on. A couple of weeks ago, I was introduced to a wonderful lady named Patricia who lives only a few miles from here. And Patricia uh, lives in circumstances that, that most of us probably could hardly believe people live in here in Tallahassee. That she is a grandmother and she is raising her grandson Christian. And she lives in a, a home that, that is falling apart, that when you walk on the floors, that there's points where you think you'll just fall through the floor, that the, the toilet is actually literally falling through the floor, and the sewer pipe underneath is broken, and there's raw sewage just running down uh, her yard into the street. And... It's so easy for us to say, oh, that's somebody else's problem. That's the government's deal, or that's, that's somebody else, who, you know, that's extreme home makeovers deal, but that's not our deal. Well, you know what? It is our deal. That God says that, you know what? We are meant to be the voice of the oppressed, that we are meant to help widows and orphans. And orphans aren't always orphans because their parents died. Sometimes they're just abandoned. And the truth is that the decisions that we make matter. That when we decide, when we, if we are going to allow our hearts to break for the things that break God's heart, when we decide that we truly are going to be the conduit of God's love and grace, when we are guided by our principles and the DNA that God has placed inside us, that the world changes for a better place.